Well, there's a husband and a wife caught in this vicious cycle of childish arguing. I'm sure none of us can relate to that. But day after day, it was getting worse. They were just bickering. They were going back and forth. They were biting each other. They were getting frustrated until finally on a Sunday afternoon, they started giving each other the silent treatment. It became this battle of wills. They needed to communicate, but neither of them was willing to, to be the one to give in and speak. So through dinner time, they went looking at each other, not saying a word, just with grimaces on their face. They're getting ready for bed, and the husband suddenly realizes he needs his wife to wake him up at 5 a.m. so that he can catch a flight for his business trip the next morning. But he's in this quandary. He doesn't want to be the first one to speak. He doesn't want to lose in this standoff. So he, he finds a piece of paper, and he writes down, please wake me at 5 a.m. And he places a piece of paper on, on the vanity where he knew she would see it as she got ready for bed. Next morning, to his great surprise, he wakes up at 9 a.m. Now he's furious. Why did his wife not wake him up? He had left that note. He knew she had seen it. And he was getting out of bed in his anger. He was going to go tell her what for. And then he noticed a, night, a note on his nightstand next to his bed that says, it's 5 a.m., sweetheart, time to wake up. I'll wait for some of you to get that. Um, Isn't it true that we have this incredible propensity to find ourselves involved in silly disagreements? And sometimes in those disagreements, we might even forget what it was that started it, but we just want to be the one that wins, right? And so we get obstinate. Sometimes those disagreements become grudges, and often those things are what end up dividing us from one another. We've been studying through 1 Corinthians, if you haven't been with us, and there's this core issue of division in this church, and this division is taking place for what what seems to be rather absurd reasons. If you'll remember, they're divided uh, over which leader is the best. They're divided over issues of sex. In fact, they're so confused that Paul at one point has to tell them uh, that it isn't okay for the men to sleep with prostitutes or for a guy to sleep with his father's wife. They're pretty messed up. They're divided over the meat that they eat. They're divided over uh, some eating meals, it seems, in pagan temples, and it's causing some of these younger believers to trip up in their faith. They're divided over what they have on their heads. They're divided over the idea of marriage and singleness. As we saw last week, they're even divided over the practice of the Lord's Supper. It's so bad that Paul tells them that their gatherings are doing more harm than good. And as we go through 1 Corinthians, it's important to recognize core issue here is that this body of Christ, this group of people that's to walk in unity is divided. And there seem to be these two things that are constant through all of these issues. Uh, One is the assumption that they know better. If you read through and just watch for the word knowledge and knowing, um, there's some sarcasm actually when Paul talks to them at times because their argument seems to be they know better. And then the other issue is they, they keep placing this importance on their individual rights over the well-being of one another. They're fighting for their way. And so these two constants, knowing better and putting myself above others, uh, seem to be there in all of their division. In chapter 8, as Paul addressed uh, their confusion over this issue of eating meat and the fact that some of it was sacrificed to idols, uh, he made this contrast. By the way, this isn't the first time he talks about knowledge, but he says, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that... And If you've been with us, there are a number of places where Paul quotes them 
uh, because the context here is Paul had written an earlier letter that we don't have a copy of, and clearly they had written a response back to him uh, that seems to be either questions or more likely some challenges to what he had said. And so he quotes that letter at times. So he's quoting them here, saying, we possess knowledge, and otherwise we kind of know better. He says, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, quoting them, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Verse 2, he says, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. They've placed this value of knowing better, in fact, above loving one another. Paul literally quotes them and their statement about their knowledge. And he says that, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This is what love does, right? It builds up other people. It encourages other people. It, it empowers other people. But here they are. They're caught in this cycle of pride and division because they focused on knowledge rather than love. And then in chapter 10, as Paul addresses these people who are misusing this personal freedom at the cost of one another, he writes this, and we've referred back to this a couple times. Again, he's quoting them. I have the right to do anything you say. Quite a statement, isn't it? I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. And then he says this. He says, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. He says that in response but I have the right to do whatever I want. Kind of attitude, right? Instead of that attitude, seek the good of others over yourself. Rather than focusing on your rights, focus on the good of one another. This, by the way, is the opposite of a self-indulgent viewpoint. Can you imagine the state this church is in? In in the words they used, even responding to Paul, the bits and pieces that we get. And here's Paul in his letter calling them to this higher value to seek not only their own good or their own desires or their own wants or their own preferences, but to seek the good of others. And from that point on, what we've seen is Paul essentially applying this idea of putting the good of others before our rights and the things we want. Now, this morning we come to a section that really we're going to be in for the next few weeks. Uh, Paul's going to apply these principles uh, to what appears to be chaos that's taking place when they're gathered for worship. Beginning in chapter 12, where we start today, and all the way through chapter 14, Paul is responding to something they've written to him about the way that they're expressing their gifts and their, their worship services. And it's either a question again or more likely a challenge. And it's on this issue of spiritual gifts. Uh, One thing I want to say about this before we jump in that I think is really important. In fact, it's something that should inform our view of, I think, all of 1 and 2 Corinthians. Much of what Paul says isn't primarily instructive as much as it is corrective. There's specific issues going on that he addresses. In other words, this isn't just this theological treatise written in a vacuum. It's a letter written to a church that has very specific problems. And so sometimes we come to some passages and we don't exactly know what to do with them. And it's helpful to understand that the tone of this letter is largely corrective. Uh, Again, they think they know a lot of things. And so he's at times adjusting uh, that knowledge, right? So turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. As we begin uh, to tackle a fairly large section together, we're just going to be in the first few verses this morning. Uh, But 1 Corinthians chapter 12 begins this way. He says, now... 
about the gifts of the Spirit. By the way, when he says now about, that's been Paul's sort of formula each time he's answering a specific question that was in their letter. He says, now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. There's a little bit of a bite to that, by the way, because these are people that think they know better, right? And he's saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. This is a rather interesting opening to this section. Again, he starts with now about because clearly there's been something they've addressed to him that he's responding to. And he follows this by saying... I do not want you to be uninformed. This is a polite way of opening with, you really don't think what you, you really don't know what you think you know uh, on this issue of spiritual gifts. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that term, scripture teaches this idea that God gives every follower of Jesus Christ with abilities through his spirit, which we're going to see uh, are intended for a specific purpose, which is building other people up. And I think in that was a large part of the problem was this misunderstanding that it was like my thing and I get to express myself and, and this proves my spirituality, which seemed to be a large issue around specifically this idea of speaking in tongues. And he has to remind them there's a purpose to these gifts and it's actually for building other people up, which makes sense, by the way, because as we've already looked at, we're referred to as the body of Christ. Last week when we looked at the issue taking place in the Lord's Supper, he actually told them that they were damaging the body of Christ in the way they were treating one another. So in verse 2, which we don't want to read past, we start to get some very interesting context. And it's going to help us understand verse 3, which frankly is rather peculiar. In his explanation of spiritual gifts, which is going to be rather long, Paul reminds them, he actually begins with this reality that their lives in Christ should contrast their former lives as pagans. By the way, this is another theme throughout the letter that we don't live as we used to live, but now we live in a different manner in Christ. If you notice, the the focus is on speaking in regards to the Spirit. Again, speaking in tongues is going to be this core issue that's addressed throughout the next couple chapters. And in this context, it appears Paul in verse 2 is referencing something they know about from their former experience, something they're well aware of, speaking some sort of utterances, probably in some ecstatic manner, and their cultic worship of these pagan gods. Paul reminds them that in their former lives, they were somehow led astray by these mute idols. And the next thing he says is, therefore, so in light of this, connected to that idea, I want you to know that no one who is speaking, if you peek down at verse 4, you'll notice that after reminding them of their background, the first point of instruction specific to this idea of spiritual gifts is going to be that there's more than one of them, that there are different kinds of gifts because they're hung up specifically on speaking. In fact, it appears to have become, as we read on, we see that it appears to almost be this litmus test within their church of of who's spiritual and who's not. They've elevated above other things, and it's becoming the source of division. But notice in verse 3, I'm going to put it up on the screen again. It's, It's rather peculiar, as I said. He says, I want you to know that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. 
Don't miss the fact that Paul has to tell them that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And he doesn't have to explain it to them. Clearly, there's something that they're aware of, that he's aware of going on that's pretty damaging. Seems to be at the center of their confusion. The fact uh, appears to be that their past pagan practices are informing their understanding now of how God's Spirit works. It's a rather strange statement, and if you start to look at scholars trying to unpack this, there's a lot of different ideas as to what this is referring to exactly. It could be referring to something they actually said in their former life. Uh, It could be connected to some of these cultic sort of curse practices that were taking place in Corinth. It could be referring to them, in fact, cursing one another. It could be a number of things. But clearly they know what the problem is because he doesn't have to explain it. But he has to point out this idea that If you're speaking by the Spirit of God, you don't say things like, Jesus, be cursed, right? That seems kind of obvious. And then he goes on to say this other thing that seems obvious, but it also seems kind of interesting. He says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, this sometimes gets understood as like some sort of testing of the spirits. I don't think that's at all what's going on here. And also it can be confusing because some people would read this and go, well, They're just words. Anybody could say Jesus is Lord, so how can I not proclaim those words without the Holy Spirit? This makes no sense if we don't understand the nature of this statement and how radical it was in their context. This confession and and what it meant in the world in which they meant. The actual order of the wording in Greek is is the Lord is Jesus. This is significant because to a Jew... Uh, This is blasphemy. This is the same pattern that would be used in speaking of Yahweh. To a Roman citizen, not only were there plenty of gods and plenty of lords, but this was also something of a political statement in regards to Caesar. And to say the Lord is Jesus or Jesus is Lord was quite a radical notion. To say that the Lord is Jesus in this context is this affirmation of total allegiance to Christ. That Christ is the one in charge, that Christ is the King. Jesus, the crucified, the risen one, through whom the whole universe was created. He alone is Lord. He calls the shots. He gets the honor. This is the idea that Paul's getting at when he says, no one can can make this claim of allegiance and, and the assumption is live this way as well without the spirit at work. As one author writes, the presence of the Spirit and power and gifts makes it easy for God's people to think of the power and gifts as the real evidence of the Spirit's presence. But that isn't the case for Paul. The ultimate criteria for the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord, which in turn expresses itself in loving concern for others. This is the understanding. So when he writes... No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There's a massive idea here. It's an idea of living in total allegiance to Christ, which seems to be not happening because of what's taking place in their church. I I would say that today, like the couple giving one another the silent treatment, we get caught in a conflict not so dissimilar from the Corinthians. You know, we have denominations formed out of their various views of how spiritual gifts work, denominations that are essentially diametrically opposed to each other, largely over their understanding of these few chapters. It's clear that God gives each follower of Jesus by his spirit. 
In fact, let's just notice what Paul says next. If we pick up in verse 4, he says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. Again, he has to remind them there isn't just one way the Spirit works. He says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. By the way, that section, those few verses, four through six, you see the word gifts, you see the word service, you see the word working, they're all interchangeable. He's speaking about the same thing. Verse seven, now to each, each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given uh, through his spirit, a message of wisdom to another a message of knowledge by means of the same spirit to another faith by the same spirit to another gifts of healing by that one spirit. Verse 10 to another miraculous powers to another prophecy to another distinguishing between spirits to another speaking in different kinds of tongues and still to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are the work of one and the same spirit and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Big idea here. God gifts us in various ways by his spirit. And those gifts are service. Those gifts are for one another. They're put to work. Verse 7, they're for the common good. They aren't just something that proves that I'm spiritual, right? Sometimes we get caught up, I think, in, in trying to figure out exactly how God works outwardly. Um, we often, in fact, our community group took some time taking sort of a spiritual gifts inventory, which, by the way, is a useful thing to do. But let's not forget the reason for them and the purpose for them. It isn't so that I can prove I'm spiritual or you can prove you're spiritual. These are aspects of who we are in Christ that empower us to serve one another, to build one another up. And I would submit this to you that if you're caught in this idea of, well, how am I gifted and Like, just start serving one another, and I bet things will start to come to the surface. If we just consistently show love for one another and take a posture of service, we may actually find more insight than we do from filling out various inventories and tests. Our focus should first be on exalting Jesus above everything else and expressing our love for Jesus by serving, by showing love and concern for others, before ourselves. This is the idea Paul's getting at. Again, we have this tendency to get caught up in the mechanics, the specifics, rather than the purpose. Again, I'll go this far. I'll say that if exalting Jesus above all else and loving one another is our focus and our regular practice, we'll likely see God's gifting coming to light in each person as we consistently want love one another. Now, there's this other idea in this that that Paul's going to unpack, and we'll get into this more next week, but it's this idea that unity doesn't mean uniformity. Unity actually uh, in the body of Christ requires diversity. We're all different, and it's healthy. And there's no single outward sign that, that suggests one person's more spiritual than another. Now, we in our church don't get caught up in speaking in tongues, but isn't it true that sometimes we view certain, especially if they're public, Gifts and abilities is more important than the ones that aren't so obvious, right? 
Sometimes speaking or leading music or, or whatever might seem like it's more important than showing hospitality on a Sunday morning, but in fact it's not. We're all gifted in unique ways, and when all of those gifts are put to work, this beautiful thing happens in the body of Christ. It's built up. Again, as I said earlier, we have this incredible propensity to find ourselves involved in silly disagreements that become arguments, that become grudges, and end up dividing one another. Unity does not require that we agree. It does not require uniformity. Unity happens when a diverse group of people following Jesus together place the good of one another before themselves and in serving one another allow God's Spirit to be at work through us. That's how it happens. So before we go any farther, which we'll we'll continue next week, I want to sit in this for a second and and with a couple questions really from this passage and and some of the other things that we've considered in the, the letter this far. And the first question is this. Does my life in Jesus contrast or look different than my life without Jesus? This is a big question. And I would suggest to us that many of the things that we've looked at up to this point in the letter that seem really weird, as I said last week, seem perfectly normal to the Corinthians. In the same way, I'm sure that there are things that we've brought culturally into our faith, into our practice and our understanding that maybe need to get set aside so that we actually look different because of Jesus. And part of how that plays itself out is that we don't get caught in silly grudges. We quickly forgive one another. We serve one another. We place other people before ourselves, right? That's the difference. That's that unity that Jesus was praying for. And I would say this very sadly, not about North Park, but about Christianity in a larger sense in the U.S. I don't think we contrast very well at all in our culture. At least the loud voices and the people that carry the banner of Christianity don't look that different oftentimes. I mean, you go on social media and look at the way Christians tear each other apart over any little idea or doctrinal statement or statement in general. I don't think we look that different. And yet we're called to stand out because of our unity in Christ. So this is a question I'd encourage you to just sit in. Like, does my life look any different because of Jesus? And secondly, how am I allowing knowing better or defending my rights and my wants to divide me from others? That's a real easy one, right? Isn't it true that the vast majority of conflict that we find ourselves in, or we dig our heels in, It's because either we're convinced we know better or we're fighting for our wants, our way, uh, our desires, right? Where in your life are you divided from people? Where do you have conflict taking place or estrangement or separation? And if you dig into those situations, can you see places where maybe you think you know better? Maybe you're defending what you want, what your rights are. As believers, again, we commit ourselves not to self-indulgence, but to another's first attitude. I think this is one of the battles for us. And this is one of those transformations that's happening as we follow Christ, as we, we essentially shift from a me-first to you-first mentality, right? 
The more we go to that place, the more we start to look like Christ, who said, again, he didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. That's our model for what we're moving towards in this life. It's away from me first and towards you first. What does it look like in practical ways for me to place Jesus above all else? If we look at our calendars, how much do we see Jesus as a priority in there? This isn't guilt, by the way. This is pointing at me too. If we look at the way we spend our resources, how much do we see Jesus as a priority in there? These are the practical outworkings of life. How we spend our time, how we spend our resources, how we spend our energy. And the way we're doing those things, is it evident that Jesus is first? Probably none of us are going to be perfect in that this morning, right? But can we see maybe where we have room to grow? Maybe this morning the Spirit of God would nudge you and say, you can shift from here to here in the way you're doing these things. Maybe just begin to to have this be a daily question. In the way I carry myself today, in the way I spend my time, my resources, my energy, the way I talk, the way I think, how can I make sure that Jesus is above everything else? Not, not to put one thing out as above everything else, but as a great example, you know, when a new iPhone comes out, right, or or new whatever, with these lines waiting, when a new video game comes out, we have people lining up to pre-order it, right? We have all this excitement about that thing, and I just wish sometimes I had that same excitement consistently for the next thing that God was calling me to, right? It's so easy to not recognize where we make things more important than they should be. And yet this breaks down to intentionality and everyday things. And then this question, what, where would God invite me to seek the good of others is my priority? I give some ideas here. Seeking the good of others often requires I set what I want aside. That I set my preferences aside. Often when people need something, it is not compatible with my schedule, right? So I set myself aside if I'm going to put others first. I think of the reality that, frankly, we are very comfortable in our culture with spending almost all of our money on ourselves. I mean, that's just reality. In fact, we're told to do that. That's how consumerism works. You don't have enough, you need more. And yet sometimes if we just set a piece of that aside even, we could see some really good things happen for people in need, right? This is practical. It's making time. It's being intentional. Do we see opportunities within our congregation where somebody is in need of help and we could serve them? When we recognize those things, then we have this opportunity in our busy schedules and all that that stuff to set that aside and, and make the good of someone else first. By the way, we don't really know how to do this if we don't know one another. That's part of what community is about. Where would God invite us to seek the good of others is our priority. We're going to continue next week in unpacking this idea of spiritual gifts. Uh, We're going to dive into some of these interesting issues around uh, specifically speaking in tongues. But I want us to understand that underneath all of this, 
Paul's being corrective to some problems, but the purpose is very clear in the spiritual gifts that he's going to talk about. They are for building one another up. They are for serving one another in Christ. They aren't for visible proof that I'm spiritual or you're spiritual, right? They aren't so we can get patted on the back or feel like we made the grade. God gifts us for the purpose of serving one another that we may grow in greater unity in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as people who often don't know where culture overlaps faith. Like the Corinthians, we probably have things that to another culture would seem weird or ridiculous that seem perfectly normal in our faith. We would ask that you would give us a greater understanding of what it means to exalt Jesus as first in our lives. We would ask that you would give us a greater awareness of the needs of the people around us, even in this room, and the opportunities we have to serve one another. And Father, we pray that you would continue to grow in us an attitude of you first rather than me first. Would you show us where our preferences or our our little wants or whatever impede us from truly embracing one another, that we could walk closely in you. We ask these things that we may honor Jesus, that we may walk in obedience to you. Amen.